0: Hello and welcome to the What the Heck podcast, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, then look at the theories surrounding it. I won't give you any answers, because I don't know them myself. I'll just give you what you need to decide for yourself. Research is done as academically as possible, and references will be given after the stories. The episode this week is a true crime episode. This week, we're looking at the Stur Bergwall murders. Stur Bergwall was born in 1950. He grew up in Korsnäs, Sweden, with his six siblings. According to his autobiography, Storr said that he had suffered abuse from his father as a child, but this was denied by his own brother in his book. There isn't a huge amount of information about his childhood or some of his adult life, but by 1991, we do know that he had taken his mother's maiden name, Quick. What followed seemed like a clear, true crime story, with the killer going by Thomas Quick being the culprit. Stur was arrested in 1990 for attempting to rob a bank outside of Fallon, Sweden. The next year, he started to go by Thomas Quick, which I will refer to him by from now on. Quick had been taken to the Serta hospital for treatment after being declared criminally insane. During his time at the hospital, Quick stabbed a man. During his therapy sessions, he confessed to over 30 murders. During these murders, he claimed to have sexually assaulted, murdered, and eaten his victims. He said he had committed these murders in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland between 1964 and 1993. The therapist told the police, who came in to investigate. During the interviews, the police began to make connections to an unsolved murder from Vekwa, Sweden. The murder had taken place in 1964. It was considered to be outside of the statute of limitations in Sweden at the time, but Quick's information allowed them to close the case. The problem with the investigation was that there were no eyewitnesses or evidence. Not even forensic evidence. Quick was convicted though, based solely on his confessions. These were obtained through recovery memory therapy that involved Quick being given benzodiazepines. These sessions happened after the police interrogations. Between 1994 and 2001, the convictions stacked up. In 1994, Quick was convicted of murdering Charles Zelmanovitz, who died in Piteå, Sweden, in 1976. In 1996, he was convicted of killing a couple in Yalivari Sweden, in 1984. In 1997, another conviction was given for the murder of Jelen Levi, a tourist from Israel. He was killed in 1988. In 1998, he was convicted of killing nine-year-old Therese Johannesson, who disappeared from Drammen, Norway, in 1988. This murder had bone fragments as evidence. The next conviction came in 2000. The victim was Trine Jensen, who disappeared from Oslo, Norway in 1981. In 2001, he was convicted of murdering Johan Asplund, who disappeared from Sundsvall, Sweden in 1980. Another conviction was given for the death of Grice Dorvik, who also disappeared from Oslo. This one was in 1985, but I don't have a date for the conviction. Quick withdrew his confessions in 2008, seven years after his final conviction. It happened during the recording of a TV documentary. His attorney said that the prosecution had withheld investigative material from the defense, which the prosecution denied. His attorney claimed that Quick was mentally ill and had confessed on prescription drugs. These arguments led to the murder convictions being reinvestigated. Quick had returned to his birth name, Stuart Bergwald, and recounted all of his confessions. He requested that the Svea Court of Appeal order a new trial for the case of Yen and Levi. In December 2009, they granted it. The court found that Quick had correctly identified the murder weapon, but information had been withheld in the initial case. Quick had made several attempts to identify the murder weapon before he'd correctly identified it. Quick moved for acquittal and the charges were dropped in 2010. He also made a declaration that he would ask for a retrial of the Therese Johannesson case, stating that he had an alibi. The Swedish State Forensic Laboratory found in 2010 that the bone fragments that had been used as evidence in the initial case were actually fabricated and made of wood. The retrial was granted and Quick was acquitted when the prosecutor dropped the charges. On July 30th, 2013, Quick was acquitted of the final of his murder convictions. Sturbergwall Bergwall or Thomas Quick, was released from prison in 2013, and his treatments at the hospital were made confidential. It's assumed that Bergwall hasn't taken any medication since then, because he's been assessed as not requiring it. That's the story of Stuart Bergwall's murders. But what was going on there? Sturbergwall confessed to over 30 murders under the pseudonym Thomas Quick in the 1990s, leading to his conviction for eight murders. Seven years after his last conviction, courts began to overturn the rulings and acquit him, leading to his release. But why? And how did all of this happen? As we heard in the story, Thomas Quick was charged and acquitted of murders that he had confessed to The lack of evidence was important to this acquittal. But how did Quick manage to get himself convicted in the first place? This one's easy. I already told you how Quick managed to be convicted. He lied. His confessions were on a whim, and then he had to stick to it when the police got involved. A lot of the details in his confessions were incorrect, being changed as the conversations continued. He had relied on hints from the police and watched their body language to make sure he had the correct answers. He'd been researching unsolved murders in the Royal Library of Stockholm while he was out on day release as well, so he had a basic idea of the murders he was confessing to. The papers picked up on the story and reported it. When he withdrew his confessions. The following investigations examined the answers he had given during those initial interviews. They found that his initial answers in regard to his confessions were inaccurate. They found that his identifications of the murder weapons and details of the victims, like birthmarks, were wrong. They also found that the police were asking leading questions and that the incorrect answers were edited out of the initial court documents. When he was interviewed by papers during the reassessment of the cases, he said that his confessions were made so that he could feel like he belonged to something. He said that he was lonely and in a place with violent criminals. He noticed that the more serious a crime was, the more interest they got from psychiatric help. He said that he wanted to belong to that group. He confessed so that he could have that interest. That's why he withdrew the confessions. He'd made them up. But this revelation leaves us with a huge gap. The mergers are no longer solved. So we're left with several questions. Was it a serial killer who perpetrated the crimes? Or are they coincidental in terms of the confessions? What's happening with the cases that were closed because the police believed that Quick had committed them? How did he even get convicted with no evidence except from his confessions that were inaccurate in every case? These are answers I can't give right now. Maybe in the future I can give updates. But from what I found, it looks like the cases aren't being reopened anytime soon. The story from this episode came from, surprisingly, the Wikipedia page on Sturberg Wall, and an extended look at Sturberg Wall and Thomas Quick on Murderpedia. The theories from this episode came from both of the previous articles, and a Guardian article called Thomas Quick, the Swedish serial killer who never was. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Social media links are available using the link in the episode description. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and will be recording and posting season 1 episodes to YouTube soon. These will be cut down so they can be watched on TikTok as well. I have a Patreon but I'm still deciding what to post on this season. There is a £3 tier if you want to support me anyway. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. My email address is also in the episode description if you want to send me spooky stories, unexplained events or even mysteries you want me to look at. If I get enough, I'll set up some listener episodes to read them. Please don't hesitate to email me if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said. Once I've seen the email, I'll make sure to correct my This week's Creature Feature will be out on Saturday and next week's episode will be out on Wednesday, March 22nd, so hold on until then.